We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Today, I'm so happy to welcome Congressman David Cicilline to the show. From the small but mighty state of Rhode Island, Congressman Cicilline has been a stalwart progressive voice in Congress since his election in 2010. Before that, he was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. He sits on the House Judiciary Committee and was a highly visible presence in the impeachment hearings against Donald Trump. If, in fact, my being honest about who I was was going to make it impossible for me to run and win, then I sort of wanted to know that before I embarked on this journey for two years. Former President Bill Clinton endorses Congressman David Cicilline. One of Rhode Island's most closely watched races was the battle for the first congressional Incumbent David Cicilline was projected to win, but he was not expected to take as much of the vote as he actually did. I first want to say, um, first, I just received a call from Representative John Laughlin who extended his congratulations, and I want to thank him for a great race and a good fight. I was elected to the Democratic House leadership, which only means Rhode Island will have a voice at the leadership table so that as we set our priorities and develop budgets and uh, decide the sequence of events, Rhode Island is going to have a loud voice in all those conversations, which is great for our state. Hi, I'm David Cicilline, and I'm fighting to protect our democracy. Sorry, not sorry. First of all, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your voice, especially in these times. So I think that my first question, I used to just close my eyes and try to imagine what it was like inside the Democratic caucus as you were deciding whether or not to impeach the president. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that process was like and what just the vibe was inside the caucus. Well, you know, it was a process that evolved over time. I mean, there were many people who, and I think particularly members who served on the Judiciary Committee, who had been engaged in a substantial amount of oversight and had the chief responsibility, obviously, for the question of impeachment. And so we were both learning information and reading the contents of the Mueller report with, you know, an understanding that there was jurisdiction of our committee to respond to it. And so I think there were many on the Judiciary Committee, including me, who came to the conclusion earlier that it was necessary to move forward with articles of impeachment. I think there were other members uh, who didn't serve on the relevant committee of jurisdiction or the Intelligence Committee who were paying close attention to it, but were doing their other work and had not, I think, fully appreciated the dangers of this president's grave misconduct. And But it was a process that over months, I think lots of colleagues spoke to each other about this issue as evidence was developed, as 
witnesses were coming before the committee after the Mueller report was released. And I think it, it worked really the way it was supposed to. People really examined the evidence, examined the arguments, looked at the relevant law, and really kind of debated within the caucus among themselves to really come to the conclusion that, you know, ultimately the entire caucus supported was to move forward with the articles of impeachment. Since our founders ratified the Constitution in 1788, the President of the United States has had its duty to advance our national interests, not his own personal or political interests. 220 years later, a congressman on this committee said, and I quote, this business of high crimes and misdemeanors goes to the question of whether or not the person serving as president of the United States put their own interests, their personal interests, ahead of public service, end quote. The congressman who said that was Mike Pence. The list goes on and on. So this claim that this is the thinnest of evidence is simply not true. There is overwhelming evidence of the existence of a scheme led by the president, led by his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to corrupt the American elections, to continue to withhold military aid until such time as a public announcement was made that would smear the president's chief political rival. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. When the Ukraine scandal broke, it sort of changed everything because it was a new set of events happening in real time. And I think even those who were reluctant to move forward based on the contents of the Mueller report recognized the dangers of inaction if this president were allowed to continue to attempt to corrupt an American presidential election by dragging a foreign power into the election in order to cheat, that that the consequences for our democracy were so great and waiting for the election would not be a satisfactory answer. And so that's when things really started to change. And do you think it was worth it? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any question. Those of us who have the privilege of serving in the Congress take an oath of office, and our responsibility is to protect and defend the Constitution. And in the face of this grave serious misconduct of the president, and frankly, in in the kind of conduct that the framers warned our country about. You know, they said when they were developing articles of impeachment in the Constitution, the framers said, you know, we can imagine one day that the office of the presidency may be so powerful that some president may attempt to use the office, not for the public good, but to advance his own or her own personal, political, or financial good. And there has to be a remedy for that. And there was a discussion, well, can't you just wait for the next election? And people said, no, you know, this is this could present a real threat to the democracy and to our country. There has to be a remedy. And they developed articles of impeachment. And frankly, they were, spoke about specifically the dangers of foreign interference as one of the chief dangers facing our democracy. So it's almost as if they were talking about this. So we had a responsibility in the face of this conduct to honor our oath of office and to charge the president with these very serious crimes. Obviously, impeachment by the House is not just a probable cause finding. It's it's a finding that the president committed offenses which are worthy of impeachment as high crimes and misdemeanors. And it's hard to think of something more serious than obstruct, an abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Abuse of power is the biggest crime. It's the highest of the high crimes because it means that the government, the leader, the president is not working for the public good, but he's working to advance his own personal political or financial good, which is, you know, the most serious abuse of power that the framers discussed. So we had a responsibility to do it. I remain disappointed that our Senate colleagues abandoned their responsibilities and in the face of overwhelming evidence, simply decided to protect the president and even refused to allow 
witnesses or documents to be introduced. So it wasn't really a trial. It was a cover-up. And I think the American people know that. Yeah. Well, and I think since the the trial, it feels like Trump feels even more emboldened. And I'm wondering if you think not removing him has actually strengthened Well, it has certainly encouraged him to follow his worst impulses, you know, unchecked. I mean, it's important to remember that the day after Robert Mueller testified and Donald Trump sort of thought he got away with the foreign interference in the 2016 election, literally the next day is when he calls President Zelensky to try to get him to help him cheat in the 2020 election and to corrupt the presidential election. So you can only imagine on Wednesday evening when he was acquitted by the Senate, Mm -hmm. you know, who did he call? Thursday morning. But I think he has received a message that the Republicans will protect him at all costs, that they will not hold him accountable in any way. And so now we've seen a series of things which are really disturbing and dangerous, a president undermining the rule of law by saying that he's going to interfere in individual criminal cases. You have over 2,000 former Department of Justice officials strongly condemning that. He had escorted out of the Pentagon uh, people who testified truthfully against him in a very kind of authoritarian way. Think about it. In the same week, he's trying to get Roger Stone's sentence lightened, who lied to Congress and committed seven felonies. He's walking out a Purple Heart recipient for telling the truth Mm. and his brother, oh, by the way, just to send a message to anybody else about the dangers of coming forward to report the misconduct of this president. A campaign of retribution and vengeance is underway at this hour against those whom Donald Trump blames for his impeachment. Two of the most prominent fact witnesses in the impeachment investigation against him have been fired barely 48 hours after the Senate acquitted the president. Trump recalled Gordon Sondland, his ambassador to the European Union tonight. Sondland released a statement saying, quote, I was advised today that the president intends to recall me effective immediately as United States ambassador to the European Union. And just hours before that, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was removed from his job as the top Ukraine expert at the National Security Council. I think he's been emboldened. I think all, you know, all of that lies at the feet of, obviously, the president first, and secondly, at the feet of the Republicans who, in the face of overwhelming evidence, refused to hold him accountable and have have basically transmitted a message to him that you are above the law, that there's nothing we're going to do to hold you accountable. And he's taken them at, at their word, and he's engaged in really serious misconduct. And when I heard Senator Collins say, oh, I think he learned his lesson. I mean, it's laughable. Yeah, yeah. yeah he did learn the lesson. You know what the lesson was? I can do anything I want because the Republicans are too cowardly to raise their voices and hold me accountable. That's the lesson. As a mom, actor, designer, author, activist, and business owner, (laughs) I know what it's like to be busy and just how distracting uncomfortable clothes can be. And that's why I love Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. These pants look great anywhere I go, and they are so comfortable. Seriously, I look professional enough for any meeting I need to go to, but feel like I'm in my PJs. It's the best of both worlds. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. (laughs) And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. 
Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. That is 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash Alyssa. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants that you'll ever wear. Go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, for 20% off. What do you think is going on there, Congressman? I mean, I have to believe that the Republicans in the House know how terrible he is, right? Do they think he's great? I think, you know, I this is a very sad observation. I think it is almost exclusively a result of their desire to protect their own elections. I mean, there's really no other explanation. The evidence is too overwhelming. And so I think they recognize that in their districts, in a Republican primary, he still is wildly popular, and they're afraid of him. They're afraid of his backing a candidate against them and losing their seat. And, you know, I test myself all the time. I think, well, suppose Hillary Clinton won. And suppose it turned out the Russians helped her and she welcomed their assistance. And then she appointed these horrible people to be in her cabinet. And then she stood in Helsinki and undermined our intelligence community and sided with Putin. And then she cozied up to Kim Jong-un and then she tried to blow up NATO. And then she put <laughs> children in cages at yeah, the border. No. Would I still be I'd supporting be, I'd her? Be, I'd be calling for I'd be calling for Hillary right. to step down of as well. Of course, I'd say, no, I wouldn't support her. And then I'd say, well, suppose she was going to run somebody in a primary against me in Rhode Island. Then I'd probably lose but I wouldn't betray my country to protect the candidate I had supported. And I think in the end, that's what these individuals are doing. They are betraying their country in that the institutions that this president is attacking have been the envy of the world. They've made America the strongest, greatest democracy in the history of the world. And they're watching a president undermine a free press, the rule of law, an independent judiciary, and they're allowing him to do it and not raising their voices in order to protect their own political future. And to me, that is just so wrong and so disappointing. And I search for another explanation because I'd like to think, well, maybe they just believe him. But I mean, I think the other piece of it, which we don't hear a lot about is, He's also promoting agenda, which many in the Republican Party have promoted or worse. You know, huge tax cuts for the richest people in this country, taking away health care and declaring the ACA unconstitutional, rolling back regulations that are destroying our environment. Right. So, I mean, they're and putting on the court people who are, you know, hostile to women, hostile to LGBTQ equality, uh, hostile to choice. So, I mean, they're getting what they want. And I think so long as he's... Right moving forward on the agenda that they're committed to, they're not prepared to break ranks from him. You got to think that this is going to affect so many generations after just even these last three and a half years. Uh, let's say he's a one-term president. I mean, we're still looking at a generational damage here. Is there any accountability for presidents anymore after this? Or, or do you think Trump and McConnell have, you know, rendered impeachment permanently moot? No, I think in a very ironic twist to this, they've reinvigorated the ultimate accountability, which is our democracy, because the mm. ultimate accountability is going to happen in November. Uh, in the end, we're going to have had to wait too long for accountability and too much damage will have been done because we could have had accountability if the Senate had done their job. But the good news is that ultimately the American people are going to hold him accountable because ultimately in November, they're going to decide, do we want to give this president who has you know, worked on behalf of the richest, most powerful people in this country and undermined 
the institutions that have made our democracy great has attacked immigrants and women and the LGBTQ community, and they're going to make him a one-term president, and they're going to send packing the Republicans who enable this. And so I think in the end, we will have accountability by the most powerful voice in the country, and that's the people of this country. Voter turnout nearly doubles in Virginia as Dems are fired up and ready to dump Trump. Super Tuesday hasn't just been a good night for former Vice President Joe Biden, who continues to rack up big wins in states all across the country. It's also a huge night for the Democratic Party, as turnout is through the roof in places that the eventual nominee will need to win in order to defeat Donald Trump in November. But you're right that it'll be generations before we repair the damage this president has done, not only to the environment, not only to human rights, but to our standing in the world. I serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and it's still remarkable to me how much people miss American leadership and what a difference American mm. leadership has made in the world. And they sort of look at you and when you go to meetings with this sort of really troubled look on their face, like, what happened to America? And I assure them, America hasn't changed. We're the same great country. We're going through a difficult period, but, you know, America will be back. It's a really important point because I, I wonder, should the American people have faith in the government after all of this? It's a fair question. I mean, the American people have seen the government respond to the most powerful special interests that exist, and that continues to be the case. I mean, this president is rolling back environmental regulations to reward fossil fuel companies and giving huge tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans and the most successful corporations in this country, refusing to support common sense gun legislation to respond to the demands of the gun lobby, refusing to work with Democrats to lower prescription drug prices to respond to the demands of big pharma. We ran on a commitment to demonstrate that we would work for the people of this country and focus on three principal issues, driving down health care costs, particularly prescription drugs, raising family incomes by rebuilding the infrastructure of our country and making a real investment there, and taking on in a serious way the corruption and self-dealing in Washington. And we've got to, I think, deliver on those three promises first. So I think there's a real reason for people to wonder, like, does government actually work for them? The good news is, if people look at the work we've done in the House, it's been one of the most productive House sessions in modern history. We've passed over 400 pieces of legislation, 275 bipartisan bills. They address the urgent priorities of the American people, bills to drive down the cost of prescription drugs, to protect coverage for pre-existing conditions, to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, universal background checks, HR1, the biggest anti-corruption bill since Watergate. And the list goes on and on. So I think if people want to have a sense of what the world might look like or what the country might look like if Democrats retain the House, win back the Senate, and elect a Democratic president, we can make all these great ideas a reality. But only half the work got done in 2018. We took back the House. And Mitch McConnell, as long as he's the Senate Majority Leader, we're not going to see progress on any issue other than appointing you know, judges, many of whom don't deserve to be judges. And so, you know— Well, that's the, that's the most terrifying It is, because that's many yeah. generations. So I yeah. think, you know, people should look at the work we're doing. If they believe that that's the right agenda for our country, help us take the Senate back, hold on to the House, and elect a Democratic president, and we can get to work on the urgent priorities of the American people. Yeah, I think that that's where my frustration lies, though. You know, 400 bills in the House have passed. Three-quarters of them— are, are bipartisan. Yeah, and 80% of them are sitting on McConnell's desk. And the Senate is doing 
absolutely nothing. And so I have a hard time keeping the faith that our government is working because it's so divisive right now. And it's everyone's so calcified in this very Republican, Democrat, left, right. And I don't know that the government can properly work if we don't commit to working together. But I think that's in many ways what the opposition wants. I mean, the opposition wants people like you and people like me to sort of give up and think, you know what, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to change because their voters, the people who are supporting the Trump vision of America, they're going to vote and they're going to vote no matter what. And so the more they can discourage people who disagree to vote, mm -hmm. the more advantageous it will be. I think we ought to be able to find bipartisanship on all those issues I just mentioned. In fact, the president spoke about driving down prescription drug prices. He talked about an infrastructure bill and he talked about draining the swamp. He hasn't actually done any of those things, but I think if he's serious about that, he's going to find willing Democrats in the House uh, willing to work with him. The truth is there's a lot of bipartisan work being done. You know, as I said, of those 400 bills, 275 of them enjoy bipartisan support. Almost every major bill I've introduced, I look for and usually find a lead Republican sponsor because I think it's important to show it's bipartisan. There's a lot more agreement on these issues than disagreement, but you have to elect people who are willing to do the work. I mean, Mitch McConnell doesn't have to pass the bills in the form that we send them. He can amend them and send them back, or he can vote them right. down. But you have to elect people who are willing to do their job. Whatever your view is on any of these issues, be willing to be held accountable and vote on it. And I think... People will have a choice in the 2020 election. It, to me, it's less important about the stand on a particular issue, but electing people who understand that they owe a responsibility to the American people to address the urgent priorities in their lives. My constituents don't agree with me on every single view I have on every issue, but they know that I understand I work for them and I get up every day trying to figure out what can I do to make the lives of Rhode Islanders better. And so if we elect people who, are, who have that view and are willing to work even across the aisle to do it, I think we'll have better results, but we can't give up because they're counting on us to give up. Big news, everyone. Yep, it's finally happening. This is the year I am straightening my teeth with candid, clear aligners. And you could be too. If you're anything like me, unhappy with your smile, self-conscious in photos, I recommend you check out Candid. Beyond delivering clear aligners directly to your door, Candid treatments include remote monitoring by your orthodontist throughout the treatment. That means you can get the same treatment oversight that you'd get by seeing an orthodontist in person without inconvenient office visits, all for a fraction of the cost. Unlike braces, Candid Clear Aligners are comfortable, removable, and totally invisible, so you can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. Plus, you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist. Unlike other companies, Candid only works with orthodontists, never general dentists. With other remote clear aligner options, you may never hear from a doctor at all as you go through your treatment. But with Candid, your treatment will be designed by an expert in tooth movement. With Candid, not only will your treatment be designed by an experienced orthodontist, but it also includes remote monitoring by the same orthodontist throughout. So you'll never have to wonder how everything is going because your orthodontist will be able to keep an eye on your treatment from anywhere. So looking ahead to wedding season or a special event, with Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. 
Learn more about Candid's process and get a complimentary 3D scan of your teeth at a Candid studio near you. It's the simplest, freest way to get started. So are you ready to take the first step towards straighter teeth? For a limited time, you can get started with $75 off by using code SORRY at candidco.com slash SORRY. That's candidco.com slash SORRY. Use code SORRY for $75 off. Candidco.com slash SORRY. Code SORRY. You've been in Congress for what? About a decade Yeah, now? this I'm in my 10th year, my fifth term. How have you seen it change over time? You know, I have to confess, since the election of Donald Trump, it has changed significantly. I mean, before Donald Trump was elected, and I served in the minority for eight years, I had lots of friendships on the other side of the aisle because you have to work with colleagues, particularly when you're in the minority, because it's the only way you can make progress on the issues you care about. And so it's sort of my personality. You know, I was a mayor. When you're a mayor, you don't have Republican potholes or Democratic schools that need to be repaired. I mean, you just have stuff you need to fix and get done. And my personality is also just like I get along with people. And so I've really developed friendships. And I always believed that people on the other side of the aisle had very different views on environmental policy, on tax policy, on healthcare policy. But I always believe, you know, they're doing what they think is right and what their constituents believe in. It's just different from my constituents. But I have to confess, having watched for the last three years the mm. same people unwilling to hold this president accountable or to raise their voices in the mm. face of really serious failings or serious misconduct, it's made, it's made it harder. I mean, I don't look at them in the same way because I sit there and think, how can you sit through this and allow yeah. a president to undermine the rule of law, to to attack immigrants, to attack the LGBTQ community, to attack the independence of the judiciary and not speak out. It's just, it's made me feel differently. And I'm trying to work through it because I still have friendships and I still have colleagues working on legislation with me and I'm in the middle of a major bipartisan antitrust investigation. But it's tough because... It's hard to watch the damage this administration is doing and, and know that these, these folks have to know it's not good for our country in the long term. Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, told the Conservative Political Action Conference that the coronavirus was a hoax of the day. Uh, do you agree with Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mulvaney, that the coronavirus uh, is the hoax of the day? The State Department is doing everything it can to protect American citizens you, around the do world. Do you believe coronavirus? I, is I'm not going to comment on what so others say. You, you're, I'm just I, asking you. Do you believe I, the I'm coronavirus telling, is a I'm hoax? I'm just telling you what the Secretary of State is doing. Do you believe the coronavirus is a hoax? We're working to keep people safe. You can't even answer that question. Yeah, it's I a mean, very. It's not even look, a gotcha you're, question. You're, you're, you believe the coronavirus is a hoax? It's a gotcha moment. It's not useful. Is the coronavirus a hoax? Can you just answer that question? We're taking it seriously. Do you have hope? I have hope. Is there a way back? What's the way back? I mean, the way back is you know for people to be certain that they are paying very close attention in the 2020 election and that they're electing and voting for and working for people who share their values. The one thing that gives me the greatest bit of hope is I think before the election of Donald Trump, we lived in a country in which people sort of thought we had a self-executing democracy. You know, as long as you voted and maybe, you know, once in a while contributed to a candidate you really liked or maybe worked on a campaign, that the system worked. And frankly, even if you didn't do any of that, 
you never really worried that our democracy was in danger. And people sort of mm -hmm. thought it just sort of worked on its own. I think the election of Donald Trump made people realize we don't live in a self-executing democracy. And right. if we're going to hold on to it, it's going to require the deep, sustained, meaningful engagement of every single person in this country. And I think the good news is we're seeing evidence of that everywhere. Not just people sort of going to one march, but people making certain their voices are heard and writing letters and coming to Congress and protesting and working on campaigns and contributing. And I think that level of engagement is so good for our democracy that the one sort of silver lining of this, I think, is after the Trump presidency, we will have a country with the most engaged citizenry in our history. And that means people will be listened to. It means the government will be more accountable. And it means the work of government will be of a higher quality. And I think that's great for our country. So, you know, assuming we get through the next year, God only knows what could happen with this president. I think at the end of a Trump administration, actually, we will have a stronger and healthier democracy. I mean, one year with this president feels like a decade. Yeah. I think particularly the thing I worry the most about is, if we're successful and the president is not reelected that period in between November and January right. when he will feel completely angry and unaccountable. And I think that will be the most sort of challenging. That's time interesting. Sure. Nobody is really talking about that period of time. Yeah. And I'm concerned. I have to tell you, I have a lot of friends who really just believe that he will not be reelected. And I have my concerns. I am very aware of what his rallies look like and what his base believes in. And we've really got to show up. We can't take it for granted. We have to work every single day to make sure that he does not win the election. No, I agree. I think nobody should at all take it for granted. No, this we is can't be, be a complacent. Tough, tough campaign. I think the good news is that on the issues that the American people care most about, once you get beyond impeachment and you get beyond the kind of terrible misconduct of the president, you say, okay, let's focus on the issues that matter in your family's life. One by one, health care. Mr. Speaker, this is Trudy Willis. Trudy and her husband, William, are lifelong residents of Middletown in my district in Rhode Island. They have three children and four wonderful grandchildren. And like millions of Americans, Trudy relies on Medicare to pay for her health care needs. For Trudy, Medicare isn't an entitlement. It's a benefit that she and millions of Americans have earned and a promise our government has made. And that's why I'm disappointed that President-elect Donald Trump has announced he will appoint a Secretary of Health and Human Services who wants to end Medicare as we know it. Let me be very clear. President-elect Trump does not have a mandate to end the guarantee of Medicare. He lost the popular vote by about two and a half million votes. We're not going to let him kill one of the most effective tools that seniors have to live their retirement years with dignity. If Republicans bring up legislation to end Medicare, we will stop this legislation dead in its tracks. We did it a decade ago when President George W. Bush tried to privatize Social Security and we'll do it again. And by doing so, we'll maintain the promise we've made to Trudy and millions of seniors across our great country. Thank you and I yield back. We're fighting to drive down the cost of prescription drugs and protect coverage for pre-existing conditions. He's in court right now in a lawsuit trying to have the ACA declared unconstitutional. Tens of millions of Americans will lose coverage for pre-existing conditions. And he just submitted a budget that includes the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. You look at gun safety. The overwhelming majority of Americans want something to be done to reduce gun violence in this country. The president has stood in the way of that. That's why in the coming weeks I will be introducing legislation that reauthorizes the assault weapons ban. During the 10 years this ban was in effect, localities reported as much as a 72% decline in gun crimes involving assault weapons. The only thing that stands in the way is Congress's failure to act. 
This time, the time for action is now. Prescription drugs, you know, you go through the list on and on. Taxes, you know, they proposed and the president signed a $2 trillion tax cut where the vast majority of that went to the richest people in this country and working people are seeing their wages remain stagnant. So I think as you go through these issues, people realize that Donald Trump fights for himself and his friends. He's for people at the top. He's not fighting for working people. And I think the realization of that will be what wins the day. And I think when we focus on those issues of the work we're getting done to drive down healthcare costs, to rebuild the infrastructure of our country, to get government working for the people again and not the special interests, and they compare that to what Donald Trump has done, we will win the election on the merits, separate and apart from his personality and his misconduct and his impeachable offenses, but just on the priorities of the Democratic Party and what we're fighting for and what Donald Trump's party is fighting for. There's so much to fight for and there's so much to fight against. But you and I actually met when we were fighting for something. You and I first met when I testified at Congresswoman Maloney's shadow hearing for the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes. And you've been such a huge supporter of the ERA since you first came to Congress. So I just want to say thank you for that. And I'm wondering if you think we're closer. How do members of Congress view this this amendment? Do you think we're going to get it done? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very exciting, obviously, with Virginia's passage as the 38th state. And it was a really important opportunity on the House floor to remind people why the Equal Rights Amendment is still necessary. I mean, it seems kind of crazy when you think in the year of 2020, that we still do not have a provision in the Constitution that prohibits discrimination based on gender. And it's, you know, our framers began with a founding documents that we know were flawed. Uh, the ideals of equality for all were not fully reflected in that document. And we've made progress as a country in moving toward equality. But it is still the case that women earn on average 82 cents on the dollar. Women face tremendous discrimination and a variety of areas of life. And the Equal Rights Amendment is essential to ensuring that once and for all, women are fully equal in this country. And it was hard to listen to the debate, to be honest, to hear people opposing it. You know, it just seems like such an obvious yeah. proposition mm-hmm. that reflects the greatest values of this country, the idea that all people are created equal. And the the notion that this is kind of controversial is really bizarre to me in a way. Um, but I'm very proud it passed, you know, the extension. Uh, and I think we're very close. I mean, obviously electing a Democratic Senate who shares that priority is going to be critical. Uh, I think this election, the 2018 election was very much powered by women, maybe because women just are smarter than men. They figure out these things before the men do. But, you know, women who left supporting Donald Trump and supported some extraordinary Democratic congressional candidates around the country, women made all the difference in the world, actually women and young people. And I think 2020 is going to be the same thing. Women and young people are going to save this country 
because they're going to insist that their voices be heard and that their values be shared by those whom they elect. I think we were all terrified because the country elected a sexual predator. And I think it was a wake-up call for all of us that with Harvey Weinstein and we saw so many powerful men, you know, being taken down and felt like this was our time. This was our time to rise up and to form a sisterhood, you know, knowing that so many of our rights were going to be at least attempted to be stripped away. You have been a strong supporter of abortion rights. And I know in Rhode Island, it has a very interesting set of elected Democratic leaders who have been less pro-choice than other Democrats. Anti-abortion activists gathered at the State House to mark 40 years since the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. That 1973 ruling legalized abortion in the United States. Providence Journal reports yesterday's rally featured speeches from former Boston Mayor Ray Flynn, as well as women who have undergone abortions. Well, tonight was obviously a big blow for pro-choice advocates after the Senate bill failed, but it's not over yet because after that vote, the committee chose to hold the identical House bill for further study, leaving it in play for the rest of the session. The Democratic Senate president escorted from his office by a sheriff as pro-choice protesters streamed in, demanding a floor vote on reproductive rights after the Reproductive Health Care Act failed in Senate Judiciary. First of all, thank you for fighting for a woman's right to choose. Do you think that that hurts you at all politically in Rhode Island? I don't know. I mean, Rhode Island is a very Catholic state. I think it's the most Catholic state in the country percentage-wise. So I think there's a lot of opposition to abortion rights, you know, sort of based on a religious teaching. But I think your religious tradition informs lots of things about the way you think about issues. But I'm very proud that Rhode Island actually was one of, I think, only 13 states that recently passed legislation to... Uh, incorporate Roe versus Wade in statute uh, to protect women. But I think this is just a basic fundamental issue about the right of women to have control over their body. There's obviously lots of evidence about the economic implications, about uh, family planning, and this notion of women making decisions to terminate a pregnancy, which are always difficult and hard and complicated, but they're decisions best made by the woman and in consultation with her doctor and whatever other family member she chooses to, but it's her body, her decision, period. And I think it is a very dangerous practice if you begin to say the government is going to limit medical procedures based on their religious tradition and women like men should have full autonomy over their body and all of their healthcare decisions, period. And that's always been my view. Well, Rhode Island is really interesting. It's a small state, but it's kind of a, a microcosm of America, really. So Very much so. Yeah. What are the important issues for the people of Rhode Island? And you're right. Rhode Island's unique in that way where, you know, have some very progressive kind of liberal types like me. But it's also there's a number of folks who are much more conservative Democrats. So it's a very, you know, we have we were hit hard by NAFTA and by the loss of jewelry and textile manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so manufacturing is a really important issue in Rhode Island. I've worked a lot on it to help revitalize American manufacturing. Healthcare is a big issue for Rhode Islanders. You know, the cost of prescription drugs, a very important issue we have, particularly for our seniors. Climate change is another huge issue. You know, where our state motto is the ocean state. Coastline is really important to the economy of Rhode Island, to the quality of life here. And, you know, 
infrastructure is a really big issue in the Northeast, particularly in Rhode Island. We have, you know, serious needs in terms of bridge, road, rail, and our governor's taking a real lead on that. You know, we're about to do a big infrastructure bill, which will have a, make a real difference in Rhode Island as well. So you were the first openly gay mayor of a U.S. capital city. What years was that? I was that? mayor from 2003 to 2011, eight years. And then one of the first openly gay members of Congress, which was yes. when? Yeah, I got elected in 2011 to Congress, began serving in 2012. Uh, I'm David Cicilline from Providence, Rhode Island. And before I ran for mayor, I had contemplated running for Congress. And there was a reporter for a local newspaper who was doing a story. And uh, at the end of the story, and the interview, he said, you know, I... And I want to ask you a question, which you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but are you gay? And I said, yes. And uh, he said, okay. And he finished writing his story. And he called me um, the next day and he said, um, I finished my column, um, but the publisher will not include in the column the answer to the last question I asked you. I have to say that in my run for mayor and in my recent campaign for Congress, my sexual orientation was really irrelevant. And I think it demonstrates how far we've come as a community and how far we've come as a country that in both my campaign for mayor, what people were really interested in knowing was what I intended to do about the important issues facing my city. And we're at that place now as, a, as, a, as certainly in Providence, I think in Rhode Island and hopefully in more and more of the country that people are starting to recognize that sexual orientation is irrelevant. It's unbelievable to me. So you are a trailblazer. Yeah. Well, it's funny. When I ran for mayor, it was, you know, a big deal back then. And now, you know, we have Lots of members of our community who are running. But I remember this funny story. This guy came into my headquarters. His name was Mr. Fitzgerald. And he said, you know, I want to ask you, I've been following you. You seem like you're really good and you have all the right ideas for the city. But I want to know, do you have a gay agenda? <laughs> I said, Mr. Fitzgerald, I do. I think you need to sit down. He kind of looked white. I said, I want great schools, low crime, good paying jobs for Providence. Right? He's like, I, I thought so. He said, that's what I told my wife. You know, when John Kennedy was running, they said the Vatican was going to control him. And look, he turned out to be great. And this volunteer became a great friend and one of my best supporters. So sometimes just running for office is a great way to build understanding and change people's hearts about what they previously thought about a particular community. Do you think that it's changed the way you view your job? Yes. I mean, I think when you're part of a marginalized community, whatever that community is, and you get elected to public office, I think my career has always been kind of looking out for the underdog. I mean, I've always been sort of the fighting against whether it was, you know, who I perceived a big, powerful state when I was a criminal defense lawyer or a civil rights lawyer, or whether it was trying to change a corrupt government when I ran for mayor and now taking on the technology companies in my antitrust investigations. I've always been the guy kind of fighting for the underdog. And I think it's informed what I do as a member of Congress, informed what I did as a mayor. If you had one message to American voters before the general election, what is that message? I don't have to think long about it. It's don't give up on your country. Don't give up on America. This is a democracy worth fighting for. And take your responsibility of citizenship deadly seriously. Study the candidates, study the issues, vote for candidates that you know are going to fight for the things that matter to you and you will help protect our democracy. I'm proud to walk by your side. Thank you so much. Thanks. We have to stop expecting politics to be sexy. A lot of the things that matter most, that are most likely to help us heal the system and make it more about us and the things we care about again, aren't that sexy. There are things like campaign finance reform to help us rebalance the effect of, effects of money in politics. 
There are things like redistricting so that our elected officials can't choose their own voters. Things like government ethics reform so that the revolving door between government and industry stops skewing the incentives of government toward industry. And we need to use our voices all the time. All the time. Not just as a tool of a campaign or a protest, but in support of the things and of things that matter most to us in our communities. We all can blaze trails if we have enough courage. And we need trailblazers so badly. We need Republicans willing to stand up to Donald Trump, even at the cost of their own seats. We need Democrats who will push against the status quo, who will always dream of something better for all Americans. And we need you. We need you to find that thing inside you that makes you unique, that only you can contribute. And we need you to lead the way with it. Are you an artist or a writer, a singer or a poet, a thinker or a maker of any kind? We need you. Are you part of a marginalized community? Boy, do we ever need you. Have you suffered in an unjust America where the rich do well and the rest help them get richer? Well, blaze a trail, light a torch lead the way. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 